Sport on Flashback Fridays, 6 to 7 p.m. Only on SAFM. And let's welcome in studio Mr. Aslam Kota. Good evening, sir. Thank you very much again for speaking to us on SAFM. Well, it's fantastic to be here at Tabiso. And once again, congratulations on your award. You do Thank a you. wonderful job on the radio. Uh, good variety, which is what it's all about. And you. Uh, if you want, if at any time of this interview, if mm. you say Mr. again, I'm leaving the studio. <laughs> Okay, okay, bear with me, bear with me, Aslam. We're going to work through this. But it's been great hearing you on, on, on TV and on radio, of course, during this England series. And maybe we can start there. You've been working today, uh, two days of play, England declaring on 499 for nine. And then South Africa, in reply, they've lost uh, two wickets. They've lost Peter Milan and they've lost Zubay Hamza. And uh, they've gone to stumps uh, on, uh, I think it was 50-odd uh, for two there. Uh, 60 for 2 rather uh, the Proteas take us through uh, uh, this test match firstly uh, what do you make of the first two days well first of all it's 1-0 so perfect Mm. for the third test and to see who's going to get their foot uh, to continue to put the foot down or to see whether South Africa can do anything to try and uh, get back into the series and once again a big emphasis on the toss and winning it and uh, them batting first but to me, what stood out in England's total of 499 was more about what happened yesterday. Today, we just saw mm-hmm. a magnificent, two fantastic knocks from the Mercurial Stokes and also Ollie Pope scoring his first 100 in Test match cricket. So those were certainly the highlights of the day today. But what we saw yesterday was at lunchtime, England 61 mm-hmm. without loss after 27 overs. So it was slow going. But they managed to actually see off the South African attack. And as early as the 22nd over, we saw Kashyaf Maharaj into the attack. And then... Day 2, 117 for 2. So it was another case of 60-odd more runs. In fact, 58 runs in that second session. So what I'm getting at here is that in the modern game, what has happened in the last, say, 10, 12, 15 years also, is that there's there's been this emphasis of scoring 300-plus runs in the day, make sure that you're scoring at over three runs and over at at the minimum, and uh, just to keep the game going along. It's one of the reasons why we've had five, four-day results and sometimes even three days. But then you get to a situation, as we've seen in, in the last two test matches, the first two, the first and second, where because of the, the nature of the South African pitches, and, mm. partic- and this one as well uh, at, at St. George's Park, it is important to note that the type of cricket that England have actually played and South Africa did in the first innings of that first test match, uh, they had to play the old-style test cricket to mm. try and make sure that they don't give any advantage to the opposition. So yesterday at the close of play at 224 for four, you felt that with four wickets only down and only a score of 224, if you weigh up and balance the day, who would you give it towards? Because that's what everybody talks about at mm. the end of the day. And it was very much England, even mm. though they had scored at just over two runs and over. The effect of that was felt today. When in the first session, because there were six wickets in hand, mm. they went after the bowling. And then, we, and, and then we saw a 203-run partnership. It's the highest of the series so far. Mm. And then the second and the third player getting hundreds in the series and all of them coming from the England team. So it was essentially all about that. And once you get to 499 and over uh, close to 27 overs to face, mm. it was always going to be tough for South Africa. And unfortunately, Milan fell to the spin of Bess and so did Hamza. And uh, both soft dismissals, one a lack of concentration from Milan and Hamza unable to read the fact that the ball was turning enough and he was caught of the bad bed. So uh, already in trouble and it's going to be a real uphill from tomorrow morning. 
just the one other thing that stood out for me was Maharaj bowling. 58 overs. overs. 15 <laughs> maidens, 5 for 180. Yesterday he bowled 30 overs out of those uh, uh, 90 overs that were bowled. Mm. And out of 152, he's bowled those 58 overs. Today he bowled 28 overs, 5 maidens, picked up 4 for 126. So at the end of it, at the end of his career, they'll say he picked up so many fifers, and this ah, one will feature there. It's a fifer. But uh, it's a fifer. But in the context of what has happened, uh, I think he wasn't captained intelligently. I think he was. Uh, they persisted with him for far too long, and it allowed the batsman who was set to then really go after him. And to to just add salt to the wound, it was Mark Wood then came in and hit two fours and five sixes, of which uh, all of those boundaries, uh, four of those sixes, came off Maharaj's bowling. So. Uh, Really a lot of food for thought in how they actually played today and also the negative way in which they started the morning's play, mm. so, which which was concerning. because Which morning? This morning, the oh, second okay. morning. Yeah. Now, I'll, I'll oh, yes, it, yes, yes. I'll yes, paint yes. a scenario for you. Yesterday, bright blue day, mm. and it was tough going on an early uh, first day pitch. This morning, you had rain, 45 minutes of delay. Mm. The, 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 the pitch was under covers for most of the night and the morning as well. So there must have been some moisture about whatever the case is. And they went with, uh, they opened with, with uh, I think it was, it was Maharaj mm. and, and Philander. Mm. And really what they needed to do was your fastest guy in the attack needed to have a full go at Stokes and company early this morning. That didn't happen. And by the time they came on, the, the pair were pretty well settled. And uh, at the end of the day, 499 for nine declared. Is is basically the story that they they definitely in the in in the in the in the uh, uh, they're controlling the test match. The other story that I heard you guys talk about yesterday on day one was the protest decision uh, to not open with Kakiso Rabada, use Venon of uh, use Venon Philander, and the debutant in Dane uh, Peterson. What do you think motivated that? And um, has it backfired, or was or maybe was it, was it not a good decision? Well, I mean, you know, we always talk in retrospect. And whilst when we're live on television, then what we do is we start searching our, our own information, our own knowledge. And uh, we're fortunate to have uh, Alviro Peterson, who actually grew up and played at that particular yeah. ground and played international cricket, and he was the right guy to ask. And he just felt that because you're now looking for answers, and his mm. answer was, and I think it was a consensus amongst us, because Peterson has grown up playing on the uh, the uh, uh, on the coastal areas, yeah. in the coastal areas, he's bowled there. Uh, the wind definitely assists him a, a, a little bit as well. And then also he was picked because he's he's a very good bowler mm-hmm. as far as reversing is concerned. But that was obviously going to come into play a little later in the day. So having given him the ball first, I don't know if it was also whether to tr- try and unsettle the England opening pair, expecting Philander and Rabada to bowl and then seeing Patterson coming at them. I must say he actually bowled really well in his first spell, Mm. five overs, none for ten. But uh, that did surprise many because the fastest bowler, apart from Nokia, is Rabada. He's your kingpin and I can't, we, we, we don't know the answer to that. And I'm not too sure if he was, uh, if Faf was asked that question last night. Mm. And I think it's too late to ask him today. <laughs> Talking about Rabada, he received a demerit, a demerit point. A lot of people say it was too harsh. He's going to miss the fourth test at his home ground at the Wanderers. Do you agree that it was harsh or, or does his reputation precede him? It's a good question. I'll tell you why. Because 
we were discussing this at lunchtime and uh, before lunch as well, and then they made it a discussion point on television this afternoon. And the consensus amongst our guys was it was very harsh. Mm -hmm. But then I said to the guys that we need to bring some kind of balance into the equation. Is it because it's Kachis Rabada that we, we, we feel this way? Is there an emotional aspect to uh, uh, our reaction? And the answer to that, the short answer to that from my point of view is it may have been harsh, but he was too far up and too close to the captain of England mm -hmm. and that the match referee and also the umpires do have a rule book of their own. So it's not the laws of cricket, oh. but the rules governing the match referee and, and behavior and those type of things. So they, they, applied, they applied that because they wouldn't just want to do that to any international cricketer. Careers are at stake, mm. series are at stake, etc. So they wouldn't take that decision lightly. Now, I may sound like I'm in defense of, of, of the officials, but I think that's how it works. And, and, and the gray areas in the last five or eight years, I think slowly, slowly they've been eradicated because these things happen uh, sporadically and you may not have a, a, a rule or a, a, or a law written for these type of incidents. So when it happens, they cover those gray areas. And I get the feeling that that's what they've done here. And unfortunate for South Africa and for Rabada because he's going to miss the next test at the Wanderers. Would have loved to see him at the Wanderers. Finally, how do you see the rest of this test going before we talk about Basil de Oliveira? <laughs> uh, as I said, it's going to be an uphill struggle. But uh, South Africa do have some quality players in there who really now need to stand up and, and, and show their mettle. And Faf Duplessis is one of them. A lot is expected of Van der Dissen in his early days in, in, in Test Match Cricket. Mm. And then you look at De Kock and the rest of the team, is, uh, there isn't much else to go by. So it's really up to Alger, who's done it for South Africa on a number of occasions. And historically, the South African captain, Faf Duplessis, started his career with some unbelievable match-saving innings. And those were so, so good that South Africa went on to win the series yeah. on the back of his performances. So he needs to try and summon up that type of courage and, and, and uh, uh, go into his memory banks and look to place uh, those type of innings. And I must tell you that I remember the, the, the Adelaide pitch is generally a, a very good batting pitch. But on that particular occasion, it was a tough one because after the match was over, Ricky Ponting himself made, the, uh, uh, Michael Clark made the point that it was a very good innings because it wasn't the easiest of pitches to bat on. Mm. So I think if Faf is listening, then, uh, you know, go back to all of that into your memory <laughs> banks, save it and try and put it out there for South Africa because you're not saving a test match. Yeah. You're looking to stay in it. So uh, it's going to be tough. And anyway, it will go down to a decider regardless of what happens in PE. The, the that's series. right. Yeah. That's right. Now, Aslam, we've brought you here to talk about um, Basil de Oliveira. We want to educate ourselves also here. We want to educate the young ones. And we've also got Mo Ali on the line. Mo, good evening. Thanks for speaking to us on SAFM. Good evening, Tabiso. And uh, let me join uh, um, Aslam in congratulating you on your award. And uh, if I might just uh, quickly come into that uh, Kahiso Rabada yes. story. Remember, he was actually banned uh, last year as well for an incident involving Steve Smith. I remember that when he nudged Steve, him on the shoulder. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> you, you just get the impression that perhaps, you know, the young man should learn to control his aggression, particularly after that incident when he got off uh, following the intervention of, of lawyers. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the laws are there. He knows about it. He was on three demerit points. So not as a result of this incident specifically. Mm. It's uh, just an accumulation of uh, demerit points. And I'm sure management would have known about it. He would have known about it. And, and I think, you know, he just perhaps took it a bit too far. 
Yeah, and just to add to what uh, Mo is saying, Mo, fantastic to have you. Lovely to have you, your voice on SAFM after such a long time. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing is we always don't know what's happening in the middle, what's gone on, on and off the, uh, off the pitch between the two teams. So that type of a reaction may have had some kind of uh, uh, reason for it. And again, I'm not defending it. I'm just saying that. And then it all comes out full-blown on the field. And then you get censured for it. And, and, and I agree with you that it can't keep happening. And uh, it's the second time in his career and he's still a young man. So uh, he needs to really knuckle down and concentrate on his cricket. Because now he's going to miss a home test match. Not too smart, KG. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to talk about Basil de Oliveira now. Uh, we're going to educate ourselves and go to class. Zanzi's sporting milestones, moments and stories. Flashback Fridays with Tabiso Musea. Mo, I'll start with you because you've got a, you've written a book called More Than a Game, and it's about basically um, non-racial sport, non-racial is it non-racial cricket or non-racial sport? Particularly in the uh, Western Province Cricket Board, which was formed in uh, 1959 and uh, ran up till Unity in uh, 1991. Mm. So, so how did this book come about? Why did you decide to document uh, these stories? I, I I I played the game myself, uh, and uh, you know, as as a young kid, I, I grew up watching uh, people like Basil de Oliveira, who came to play here in 1972-73. Uh, played for Eastern Province at the time. Uh, the likes of Rowan Kanai, the West Indian great, played for Transvaal. In fact, uh, you know, each of the provinces had an overseas professional, uh, most of them coming from the uh, West Indies. And uh, I, I grew up watching, uh, you know, what were heroes to me, the likes of uh, Basil de Oliveira, Kuti Nietling. Uh, Saeed Majid, Dekabit, the likes, you know, and, and I, I just thought, that, you know, it would have been criminal, really, really uh, a sad story if we had not documented the achievements and uh, the sacrifices that uh, people like these had made over the years, uh, particularly during the tough years of the anti-apartheid struggle. And, and people gave up their careers. You know, they could have had uh, much more illustrious careers uh, if they had uh, sacrificed their principles, gone to play on the other side to give legitimacy to what was then known as normal sport uh, that was introduced by the Nationalist Party government in an attempt to get back into international sport. And I, I just felt I had to do this. Uh, I was I was well-placed as having seen and, and, and seen these players in action, having met them, and uh, also being a journalist. So I, I thought I was very well-placed to do that, and I'm, I'm so, so glad that I did it because many, many of these uh, people that I interviewed, many people that I, I wrote about have mm. now sadly passed away. But uh, fortunately now, young people will still be able to read about them and, uh, you know, uh, derive inspiration from what, the lengths that they went to to keep the game alive. For example, mm. in, in Cape Town, uh, you know, they, they played on uh, common grounds, uh, you know, which was open to the public. And uh, on, on a Thursday, they would go and burn the grass so, because they didn't have lawnmowers and, and, and uh, instruments with which to cut the grass. So they <laughs> literally went to go and burn the grass to, to bring the grass down to a playable level. And uh, they, used to carry, they used to play on, on, on gravel wickets with, uh, covered with a coir mat. And, uh, you know, on many occasions, people would carry that mat for a few kilometers on a Saturday morning to get the ground ready. They would, uh, you know, oh. post uh, flags up to, to, to mark out the boundaries. Uh, they would roll the wicket themselves. And uh, it's, it's just tremendous. Uh, for 
for me, it was just so inspirational to hear uh, the lengths that people went to to play the game, to keep the game alive. And I'm sure, you know, that would apply to other sports as well, like rugby and cricket and tennis. And, and you know, uh, the fact that we've had players like uh, Ashwell Prince, Kahiso Rabada, Makaya Antini, it's all because of the tradition that was left for them by, uh, you know, people who came before them. So how did you go about sourcing out these stories? Was it easy or hard to find the, 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 the stories and to find the guys and their families? No, you know, and, and as, a, as, a, as a youngster uh, growing up, I'd always heard, and for me, the, the biggest one was Eric Peterson. I, you know, I, I, I was an opening batsman, and I'd always hear the older guys say, oh, you guys would never have been able to play against Eric Peterson. <laughs> I always, it was always drummed into us about this Eric Peterson, Eric Peterson. And it was a, a kind of a mystical figure because he didn't come to any games after his retirement. He had gone into seclusion. Nobody knew where he was. And, uh, you know, same with, with the Bed. Uh, you know, a lot of the guys, you, you'd heard about them and their feats in the earlier years. And I went to go and seek them out in fact, I traveled overseas as well uh, to, to the UK to go and meet people like Cecil Abrams, uh, Dick Abed in, in Holland. Uh, that, that's, that, that's a meeting I'll never forget because that was the night Manchester United won the Champions League against oh. Bayern Munich in 1999. Oh. And, uh, you know, it was just so fascinating to, 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 to speak to these people and... Uh, to hear them tell their story. And, and you could see they were actually waiting for somebody to record their stories because it's such fascinating stories. For example, there were about eight or nine guys from the Western Cape who went to go and play in the Lancashire League in England, led by Basil de Oliveira, went over in 1960. And uh, in, we know we all know what happened with Basil de Oliveira eventually went to go and, uh, on to represent England. Yes. Um, but these were guys uh, who had no uh, prior uh, experience of playing on turf wickets. They were unknown outside South Africa, and, and within South Africa they were unknown outside their non-racial circles. And it was just such a massive gamble for these Lancashire League teams to take on these players as the professionals because, remember, these guys had not only be the professional in the team, they also had to do coaching, and uh, they had to, to, to literally keep up the team. And... Most of the Lancashire League teams actually had overseas professional test players playing for them. And here were these South Africans, unknowns, taking up the role as professionals. And they performed superbly well. Basil de Oliveira, obviously, you know, setting uh, the, the example and paving the way for others to follow, like Cecil Abrams, with son John Abrams, for example, Captain Lancashire in the Benson and Hedges final. Basil's son, Damien de Oliveira, his grandson, uh, Brett, is also now playing uh, professional cricket in England. And, uh, you know, it was just so, so fascinating to hear the stories of these guys. They would read books before they went to England uh, on how to coach because they had never experienced coaching before. Uh, they had never experienced uh, wet weather, playing in, 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 in damp conditions, in cold conditions. But uh, somehow they, they survived. And there was another, Dekabed, for example, mm. uh, you know, uh, achieved legendary status uh, with Enfield in, in the Lancashire League. In fact, uh, when the Lancashire League celebrated their centenary in uh, 1998, he was voted each of the uh, 14 Lancashire League clubs had to vote their greatest player of all time. And Dekabed was actually voted as the infield's greatest player of all time ahead of the likes of uh, Conrad Hunt and uh, Clyde Walker. So you can imagine the impact <laughs> that he, he had made uh, playing for in the Lancashire League. And in fact, uh, you know, 
many believed he was good enough to play county cricket, but somehow or other he was kept out of the county circuit because uh, the English authorities feared that they could have another Basil de Oliveira situation on their hand. There was Owen Williams as well, who played, who was signed by Warwickshire, uh, but he, he turned down the contract because he felt that uh, because they had Lance Gibbs in, in, in the team, he would not get enough opportunities, and he was uh, working successfully back home as a cabinet maker. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the list of stories just goes on about how these guys overcame the terrible conditions under which they played here to make a name for themselves uh, playing in England. Which is why you titled the book More Than a Game, because it's just more than about cricket. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you touched on, on, on Basil de Oliveira. We all know the impact that uh, Basil de Oliveira had on uh, South Africa's cricketing isolation. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's just a fascinating story because uh, Basil actually had to lie about his age as well. You know, he, <laughs> he, he made his, profe- he made his uh, test debut as a 35-year-old, but at that time, Nobody knew he was actually 35 years old because who would, who would select a 35-year-old to make your debut in the test team? So he actually lied about his age. He said he was younger than what he was. He was encouraged to shave his moustache, for example, to make him look younger. And it was only in later years that his true age was revealed. And, uh, you know, for, he, 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 it's just a fascinating story because he had a poor tour of the West Indies prior to uh, the, the series against uh, Australia. He was dropped for that series against Australia in 1968, uh, got into the team for the final test because Tom Cartwright had, had been injured, and uh, he, he then made use of that opportunity, was dropped on 31, and then went to go and make 158. Oh. And uh, still he wasn't selected in the England team to uh, come and play against South Africa, and the South African government under B.J. Foster had actually made it clear that they would not accept an England team that contained a so-called coloured player in the form of Basil de Oliveira. They said that that was the team of the anti-apartheid movement. And Basil de Oliveira was not selected even after making 158 in that uh, game against Australia because there had been some connivances between the English authorities and the South African authorities. In fact, he was actually offered a contract of £40,000 at that time to come and coach in South Africa to prevent him from making himself available for that England team. And again, Tom Cartwright was selected. He pulled out of the team uh, because of injury, and there was Basil de Oliveira selected. And uh, we, we all know that the South African government refused to, to accept a team that included Basil de Oliveira, and that eventually resulted in the isolation of South African cricket between uh, 1970, when the Australians last played here, until their, their first test in uh, 1991 back in, in this country. Oh, what a story. What a great insight there from Mo Ali Aslam. The, the, the teams are now playing for the Basil de Oliveira Trophy. I'm going to leave the trophy. room. I think you can do with Mohammed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're playing for the Basil de Oliveira Trophy. It's been happening for the past few years. Do you get the sense that the players are aware of, 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 of just the, the significance and the impact of this man? I reckon the English have uh, a bigger, uh, uh, I think, appreciation of uh, playing for the Basil de Oliveira Trophy. Remember, mm. he's been honoured in, in Worcester, as yes. we've just heard from Mohammed. He also has a grandstand named after him at that particular ground. Uh, his his record as a player at Worcestershire is, is a standout one because he, till today, holds one of the... Uh, uh, I think he's, he's... I'll put it this way, that he's possibly one of the most respected coaches, apart from his playing days when he came in there in his first season... Uh, he got runs and they ended up winning the county championships and they went on to win it, I think, during his career, uh, a record five times. Mm. And then as a coach, he uh, also led them to a number of victories. So Basil's impact in that part of the world was was beyond our imagination. So I think the English players appreciate it more. There's more been written about Basil 
from uh, outside of the country than That's inside. True. And um, we saw Sky uh, Television with Michael Atherton produce mm-hmm. something about a week ago about where he was born and where this, 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 this iconic player emerged from. And so there's more uh, uh, emphasis and more interest in Basel outside of the country than inside the country. And I would clearly, and I would say it without any hesitation, is that because he was still a black cricketer in South Africa, that the emphasis and the impact that he had on the game, and Mohammed spoke about his impact that he had uh, in, in the game in South Africa, I'm trying to illustrate to you the impact that he had on the other side of the world. Mm. And um, it was quite phenomenal. And one of the important points that Mohammed has raised is uh, the uh, issue of how, and this is why I'm bringing this up, how the people in Cape Town and the cricket authorities, even up till today, don't appreciate what uh, Basel meant to them. They looking at it through very uh, uh, narrow confines, where they're saying that not much, he didn't do much for his fellow cricketers at that time. And oh. Mohammed's covered that issue where the English authorities and more so the counties were then uh, almost loath to take another South African on because they didn't want another Dolly affair yeah. on their hands. So the likes of Dukabed and a few others, Owen Williams included, and maybe even John Williams' uh, John Abrams' dad uh, possibly lost out in playing uh, county cricket. So what happened was a number of years back, there was this uh, call for uh, a uh, part of the Western Province Cricket Association's ground, which is Newlands, mm to have uh, a grandstand or a portion of it named after Basil de Oliveira. And you wouldn't believe the negative reaction came out all of of the the former non-racial clubs that came out of the South African Cricket Board of Control and South African Cricket Board. So that to me was was very disappointing because I just keep thinking that they don't see the bigger picture, that he was only a catalyst in what was going to inevitably be South Africa's isolation. And it needed something quite extraordinary to bring it into the uh, uh, focus of the world uh, and more so the sporting world, that this is actually so real in South Africa. And it needed a country of uh, England's stature to be involved in this whole uh, big fiasco as it was then for them to have realized what what had gone on. Because immediately after the, the South Africa's isolation in cricket, the, uh, it was then even stronger at FIFA. Uh, mm-hmm. The Olympic Committee did the same thing. And then tennis, which uh, they used to come and play here, Davis Cup and everything, isolated South Africa. And the rippling effect after that was, was massive. So people look at uh, the, the, the Basel affair, those lot in Cape Town, through a very narrow uh, uh, point of view. And I'm giving you the bigger point of view, yeah. that what had actually happened and why he had this impact. And one of the reasons he actually received the CBE and then the OBE is that apart from his contribution to English cricket, Mm. but the manner in which he conducted himself throughout that affair was, again, beyond compare. He was was, uh, uh, more than a gentleman uh, in in the fact that he was um, such a big, uh, or he was surrounded by such such an issue that and I'm sure the English media must have tried their best mm. to get so much out of him. And uh, they didn't. And sadly, after his death, one of the best cricket books that you will ever read is the story of Basil de Oliveira, written by Peter Oborn. Uh, I, would, I, I would want and urge a lot of the South Africans who are listening to us on SAFM now, doesn't matter whether you played sport or not or whether you're interested in cricket or not, 
That is one of the books to, of the ages. You need to get your hands on it because it covers the entire issue of how government level mm. in South Africa, which we know of, but even in England. And apart from that, the authorities for cricket in South Africa, the likes of Jack Cheatham and so many others, were working in cahoots with with uh, their counterparts at, in the MCC, including the captain, um, what was his name, uh, Colin Cowdery, mm. that told one uh, one story to Bezel, and of course he was discussing a whole lot of other things inside of the uh, of the offices at the MCC at Lords, because he also wanted the tour to South Africa to happen because of their wonderful relationship with soccer, so that. Perhaps to add to what uh, Mo has said, uh, encapsulates that period and what had happened. And in between all of that, the names that he has mentioned, yes. uh, the, that from the Western Province area, around the country, and all of us were involved, Mo and myself included, where we played despite the subjugation, despite mm. the lack of facilities. And I don't think too many people appreciate what, when we talk about lack of facilities, what it actually meant. And um, I'm wondering if there are any photographs enough to perhaps illustrate what it was like in, in, in that time. So for me, Basil is an ultimate hero. And that uh, the fact that they named the trophy after him was, was a, a masterstroke. Uh, I will repeat the story. And uh, Mohammed, Mohammed knows uh, Yusuf Garda very well. Yes, yes, He's yes. in his 80s now. And uh, he was the main reason, uh, a Basel friend and, and a Basel fan, Basel fan, and they played together. And he then eventually decided that the idea needs to go uh, a step further. So he spoke to Andre Udendal, mm. who at that at stage wasn't, yeah, wasn't involved in cricket. He was still oh. uh, w uh, with the Robben Island Museum. But, and, and obviously, in a, in a way, he was involved with cricket because he was writing. Mm. And they then took the suggestion to Gerald Majola, and from what I heard, it didn't take too long for Gerald to say yes. They wrote the letter to England. Brilliant. England were absolutely delighted and actually felt that they should have been playing South Africa for a Basel Tolofera trophy in England and not South Africa. Oh, wow. Talk We've got a voice note yeah. that's come through here. Let's go to the voice notes. You can keep them coming on 0614104107. We are telling the story and educating ourselves about uh, uh, Basel de Oliveira. Uh, very good evening to you. You know, some time back, you had Papa Sugulam's son on your show, and I sent you a WhatsApp message stating that Basil de Oliveira had the same fate. I come from a little town in Kaiser and Danhauser. I remember very clearly in the 70s and 80s, there was a local Indian shop that we should get all our supplies from. And on the walls outside, on both the left and right wall, in the center was his door, he had two posters or two banners or what would I call billboards that were mounted on the walls and there you had Basil de Oliveira standing with a cricket bat. I wonder how many of your listeners can identify with me on this one. Thank you. Bye. Good evening Tabiso. This is Nazim Krotum. Great story indeed. Can they make that book into something to wash? Or like film. Okay, calling for visuals of that book there. Thanks for that. I think it was Yaya from the first voice note. And uh, thanks for those two voice notes. Aslam, we, you know, when we're preparing for this interview, we found an article from The Guardian that says Basil de Oliveira is the England cricketer who helped bring down apartheid. Does that sum it up? 
Yes, of course it does. Uh, I think what Mo has mentioned in so much detail and then for what I've just been managed to cover, I think uh, that headline says it all because that's exactly what it was. But remember, and I'm going to say this again, that he was just the quiet catalyst in the whole thing. He Mm. just happened to be this little pawn that wasn't even in the game. Mo, how do you describe his, his, his playing style? And was he a proper all-rounder? He was indeed a proper all-rounder. He was a man who, who had a very swashbuckling style. He could uh, you know, easily score 200 in an afternoon uh, in, in club games. And you know, he was a very ambitious uh, cricketer as well. He, he bowled medium paces as well. Uh, much better batsman than a bowler, but he could get you vital wickets. And uh, let's not forget, he was a very good footballer as well. He yes. played, uh, you know, provision played for the national uh, coloured team in, in the 1950s as well. So he was a, a top, top footballer in, uh, too. But, uh, you know, uh, he, he was a very, very ambitious uh, cricketer. He captained the South African non-racial side against the touring Kenyans in 1956. They went on a tour to Kenya in 1958. And, uh, you know, because of his ambition, because he wanted to test himself against the uh, opposition. He actually wrote a series of letters to John Arlott, the legendary English commentator, to ask for a way to, uh, you know, get himself to, to play in England. And there was a, a, a journalist, he was a, a barman as well, Damu Bansa, uh, you know, who assisted a great deal as well in getting players overseas. They wrote letters to the English, uh, uh, the Lancashire League clubs. And Basil's first contract that he got from Middleton in England was uh, not the biggest contract. It didn't pay him a lot. And very importantly, uh, it didn't include the airfare. So people got together. They played uh, friendly matches to raise funds uh, to eventually get Basel overseas and, and hopefully for them, you know, to, to uh, uh, open the door for other players. In fact, a West Indies team uh, led by uh, Frank Worrell was supposed to tour South Africa in 1959. So ambitious were the non-racial cricketers to test themselves at mm. a higher level to show their capabilities because obviously it must have been very frustrating for them just to, to, to be confined to playing against South African opposition all the time when their white counterparts were playing. Or the Kenyans for that matter. And if I could just make a point <laughs> that uh, the South African team, that, or the so-called South African team that was playing test cricket wasn't South Africa. It didn't represent South Africa. It represented the South African Cricket Association because players from the other unions were not eligible to be selected. And uh, the quota system that people talk so much about was actually introduced in uh, 1894. It was an all-white quota that was introduced by Cecil John Rose because Crom Hendricks, uh, a Malay bowler, you know, was, was good enough. Uh, in fact, the, the secretary of the South African Cricket Association, uh, Codwaller, wanted uh, Crom Hendricks to go with the team to England because he was considered good enough. Cecil John Rhodes vetoed that selection. So from that day, we had a quota system of all whites uh, yeah. introduced by the South African Cricket Association. So when people talk about quotas, we mustn't talk about post-1992. And, uh, you know, when we talk about the South African team, it was the team of the South African Cricket Association. There was a team of the South African Cricket Board of Control as well. There were other national bodies that weren't considered by the International Cricket Council as it was at that time. And, uh, you know, Basil wanted to test himself at a higher level, as did the other players as well, because they felt they were capable and, and they needed to, to, to try and express their talents. Unfortunately for them, those doors were closed by the apartheid system. And, uh, you know, Basil's role 
in uh, opening doors for people to, to, to play overseas and, uh, you know, the likes of Des February, Rusty Majit, or, or Babu Ibrahim, Jakub Omar, all these players who went to go and play overseas. It was thanks to uh, Basil de Oliveira opening the doors for performing as well as he did because, as I mentioned earlier on, these were complete, complete unknowns uh, in England. You know, they only took players of uh, who played test cricket in, in the Lancashire League to be their professionals and... Uh, by virtue of his performances, he opened the door uh, for the others to follow and, uh, you know, sustained the, 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 the interest and the morale of non-racial cricketers because, as Asla mentioned, the facilities that we... I mean, if, if you were to consider now playing on a uh, matting wicket uh, without a helmet, without protection that plays that today, it, it literally is suicidal. On Twitter, Noel Crowe says the legacy and contribution of Basil de Oliveira, Dennis Brutus, Howa have popularized what became the mantra of Sakos, no normal sport in an abnormal society, yet it needed the ECB to highlight Basil's contribution. So, Mo, you mentioned that he played football and he played cricket for the SA non-racial team. Was he already a household name then in the marginalized communities here in South Africa before he went overseas? Very much so, very much so. He was the outstanding cricketer at the time. There was also Frank Hoho, you know, a man who made yes, 400 at one time. Yes, he scored a triple hundred also. <laughs> in, in Johannesburg. Uh, there were lots of players, but Basil was, was uh, probably the outstanding player. I, I, I didn't have the opportunity of seeing him playing in his prime. He did come over in the 1970s. In fact, I had the privilege of being coached by him together with a few other schools players. And, uh, you know, he, he was a, a stylish player. And remember, you know, for someone coming from a background like his, uh, underprivileged, didn't get the opportunities to play on uh, turf wickets, didn't get the opportunities to play on, on, on a big stage. For him to make his debut at the age of 35 against the West Indies uh, was, was a magnificent achievement. And for him to have continued playing test cricket until uh, the ripe age of close to 40 and uh, performing as he did was, was just phenomenal, if you think about it now, because... Just imagine people are making a big thing about uh, Peter Milan, for example, making mm, his debut at 30. the age of 30 for South Africa when he played in the first test, or the second test, rather, uh, or the first test at, at uh, oh, no, second test, sorry, at, at Newlands. And, uh, you know, that was 30 years, Basil de Oliveira, playing in a foreign country, playing in different conditions, and uh, really excelling himself. And uh, at the age of, th- uh, the ripe old age of 35, can you imagine how much of more of an impact he would have made had he started playing test cricket in his prime, which would have been in his early 20s? Now, Aslam, how, what kept you guys going at the time, considering these challenges uh, that you faced? I mean, these are not even challenges. They're beyond uh, uh, challenges. But you guys kept on playing for the love of the game. You're still involved in cricket up until this, up until this day. You don't sound bitter. You, you even seem to suggest that Basil is not, was not bitter. How, what, kept you, what kept you going at the time? Well, there's two facets to that uh, question. or uh, The answer will have two facets to it. The one is that the pure love for the game, absolute love for the game. And the other is that had we stopped playing, had the subjugation uh, uh, thrown us into our kraals, into our homes, and we stopped playing the game, then the fight that uh, the, 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 there was the political fight yeah. and that there, there had to be one from the sporting front. And that's where I think all of the sports people that played non-racial sport, not just cricket, were, were, were very important to that because – they could easily have gone to FIFA and the ICC and said, but these people don't even play the sport, so why mm. are you, you, you ignoring us? But there were strong unions. There were great numbers. In fact, if you took uh, black cricket, soccer, and 
most of the other sports, including rugby, mm. if you put the numbers to it, there'd be more of them competing than our white counterparts at that time. So it was important to keep that fight going. And that's why the administrators, we sometimes fail to, 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 to acknowledge, uh, did a, an unbelievable job because it was it was for the love of the game and also to make sure that politically the fight was there in the eyes of the of the world. And that's what actually kept us going. And that is why till today, I must say this, because with what's going on in South African cricket now mm. and also the, 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 the toing and froing with, with, with uh, uh, some of the, the uh, bigger players that are involved in South African cricket, is that we will not rest on our laurels if we see that's something that's unfair, if we see racial bias. So, and, and particularly the Indian and colored community are, 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 are almost looked at with a jaundiced eye. Mm. Because you guys are always arguing. You get you chaps are never uh, happy about what's <laughs> going on. But uh, any situation needs a policeman, and I think that's where uh, our upbringing has 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 directed us. And that's why we're still here today. In time to come, if we're going to leave this fight to the youngsters who are who are running cricket and sport today, then the real issues will be ignored and perhaps go back to where we were uh, mm. pre 1991. So for me, that sort of maybe gives you an, an idea and makes a yeah. clearer picture as to where we come from. Let's go to the lines. Uh, Mr. Achi calling us from Volcom. Good evening, sir. Member, good evening. And you gentlemen there. Good evening. Good evening. Member, uh, firstly, I thought Ashraf was nocturnal. Or in shouting, is it already dark? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the sun's almost setting. <laughs> okay, okay. Hi, Ashraf. I'm um, very well, thank you. Remember, things, I mean, uh, in the mid-90s, towards the end of the 90s, the question of women um, was brought up to be saying one of the airports, either the present O.R. Tambo hmm. and the Cape Town airport, should be named after him. I don't know where, how, what, what happened to that. Oh, 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 well, maybe you'll tell us. Because on the other hand, then you remember, the only relevant person which we concentrated of, on, where, which was a mistake, we should have concentrated on all the cricket world, mm. was, um, I mean, was the, their former CEO, where we asked him as to say, please tell us, what happens now with this person? And on the other hand, we also went on to say, all these who are doing sports administration at whatever level should be forced, amongst other people, to have a dissertation or a thesis around Womdiolisir. And so I'm sure that I mean, most will tell us. And lastly, you guys are saying the score for today was 499 for nine. I don't know because now there was a declaration after eight. So you cannot say I declare at eight, I mean I declare at 4.99 for eight, and then all of a sudden the result becomes 4.99 no, no. for nine. Uh, you, you know what happened there? What, yes. what what happened there was that somebody was out. I think it was Mark Wood. Uh, okay. I think I, I I think he was out, and then he was out of a no ball, and then they were told to go back and bat because Joe Root was declaring at the time, and then they were told to go back and bat, and then they went on to go bat, and they smashed a couple of more runs, and then when he was last man out, that's when they declared. There were nine down. Stuart Broad was the only one that didn't bat. 
I thank you, member. Okay, thanks, Achi, for that in Valcom. Mo, I want us now to focus on that tour that was cancelled when Basil was picked for the England tour. The Prime Minister at the time, from what we've seen, was a certain gentleman called John Forster. Is it true that he had agreed initially that Basil can be picked and can come to South Africa, but he later turned back on his word? No, uh, from what I, 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 I've actually just gone through the book mm. that uh, Aslam talked about by Peter Oborn. Mm. And, uh, you know, Peter Oborn actually had access to archive material and, and uh, records that were later released. Uh, there was never any question that uh, uh, John Forster would agree to. They made it very clear from the start mm. that uh, he would have been no lynched by the Nationalists. would be accepted as part of the England team. And they went to all sorts of lengths to try and get Basil to make himself unavailable for this tour, including having uh, secret discussions with the English authorities not to include Basil. The English were very much part of the scheme as well. And uh, obviously it, it did help him that he lost form in, in the tour to the West Indies. But then, you know, uh, circumstances as it happened, uh, very interestingly as well, I did mention Tom Cartwright pulled out and uh, Basil was called into the 12, but it yes. certainly wasn't. Uh, a certainty to start. And then Roger Prideau, uh, who from South, 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 South Africans may remember as being a television commentator as well, uh, he actually pulled out of the team at the last minute because he feared that if he didn't perform well, he wouldn't come on the tour to South Africa. And Basil was then selected for that game against Australia. And he, as we mentioned, he went on to make that 158 that uh, forced the selectors uh, to uh, uh, pick him for the team for South Africa. They still didn't. And then Tom Cartwright pulled out, pulled out and they had to select Basil de Oliveira. And uh, if, if Basil had been perhaps a, a man of lesser principle, he could have uh, taken up that coaching offer or he could have made himself unavailable for the tour and, uh, you know, averted any kind of controversy because surely it would have had some massive impact on him, on his personal life as well, uh, you know, all the controversy swirling around him. And uh, the, the, as we mentioned, you know, that incident was responsible for South Africa's sporting isolation. And I would, I would suggest that South Africa's sporting isolation and the fight by non-racial sports people to ensure that white South African uh, sport was kept out of international sport played a huge role in the eventual demise of apartheid. So, I'd just like to mention yes. two things very quickly uh, on the back of what Mohammed has just said. Uh, before I share a, a terrific anecdote, there was not just the coaching job, but he mm. was also offered to come to South Africa as a journalist and cover that tour. Can you believe they had the call to offer him that? So, uh, and and it was a cigarette company that sent their, these days we call them CEO, to actually go across and make that offer of 40,000 pounds. The anecdote I want to just share is that, uh, and it's out of the Peter Oborn book, Mm. where uh, there was this whole thing about Basil being dropped. And he was determined to come and play in South Africa and, of course, regain his place in the England team. So that was his priority. Coming to South Africa was obviously uh, uh, high up in his, in his ambitions to play here. And he was, I'm sure, for a while before the tour actually happened that he must have uh, even toyed with the idea that this is going to happen. I'm actually going to play in South Africa. And then, of course, we saw what unfolded. Mm. And when he had to go out and bat that morning at the Oval, he was not out 20 overnight. He was dropped. And the umpire then said to uh, the uh, non-striker that that may have been the most costliest drop of them all. Mm. Because what happened was in the morning when Basil left home, his wife, Naomi, who passed away recently, he said to her, please keep, uh, uh, keep the children, let them play outside, watch the television because I'm going to score 100 today. <laughs> so he went out at the Oval and scored 158. Wow. And... 
if there were any questions and doubts whether he should be uh, coming on that tour, that innings perhaps sealed it for him. So that needs to be mentioned mm-hmm. because try and imagine the courage. Because if you're Muhammad Ali and you say you're going to knock uh, Archie Moore in four, you do it. Yeah. So because that was Muhammad Ali in in 15 rounds or four rounds yeah. and so on and so forth. Here is a, such a, a situation where it takes a long time to score 100 and to be able to concentrate for the number of minutes and balls that you face to go through that whole thing and then come through and not just get 100 but get to 158. To me, that just tells you what a caliber of a player he was and what a strong-willed and minded character he was in order to achieve that and pull that off and not many can actually do that. Got a few SMSs. The one says, how short-sighted that old government was. Such said history. Hopefully we can all be much wiser in our generation to see that we will not have to look back with regrets. That's from WM. And uh, somebody says, do you think the white protest all boys will allow Bavuma to get back in the protest team after a sparkling 180? Don't hold your breath folks and the other one says tabby so it seems like the return of the much heralded white proteas all boys club so-called saviors graham smith and chummies hasn't actually made much difference in uh, the ailing proteas a team so i think we've evoked some emotion here please make us understand aslam we've got three minutes left i can't believe time has flown by so quickly what then would this um bj foster is the same person as john foster right yes. what would he have feared with basil coming here to south africa just to make sure that uh, whoever was backing him, uh, even overseas, that uh, that wise, the control of the, the the white bastion, and the fact that in every uh, area of society by 1969, 70, uh, all of the rules were and laws were enacted and in place, and they certainly didn't want anyone to come in and break that law. I think it was more emotive from from a white South African point of view and the nationalist government point of view because he was a South African-born Cape Colored who was now coming to represent a foreign team and that would have been a smack in the face for the system. And uh, I'd I'd put it down to that. And obviously under his watch, he was never going to allow that to happen. Sure. Mo, as we wrap up now, um, do you think Basil gets the recognition or the respect that it deserves here in South Africa? Uh, as, as Aslam mentioned, I think he gets more respect and recognition in England, but it, it, uh, that's why it's important, you know, for people, especially younger people, uh, to get to know the story of uh, Basil de Oliveira, and not only Basil de Oliveira, but also the others, you know, who had the talent uh, to play international sport, and unfortunately, because of that vile system of apartheid, didn't get the opportunity. So I think, uh, you know, uh, the onus is on people like ourselves to uh, let the young people know, uh, you know, about uh, heroes like Basil de Oliveira and the many others uh, who sacrificed so much to uh, put us into the position where we are today. Aslam, I've got you here. I'm going to end with this question. There are a lot of tweets about Temba Pavuma. Is that 180 enough to get for him to get back into the team or does he need more runs? Must he just focus on, on getting runs in domestic cricket? Well, I think the idea is uh, one swallow doesn't make a summer. Uh, I must say that it was a quality innings. It wasn't a swashbuckling innings as one of our uh, uh, contributors yeah, it was just match said. Saving. It was match saving. It was a pugnacious innings. He 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 hung out there, and I think uh, he did exceptionally well in that. He was hoping that he'd force a draw for yeah. his team, so that didn't happen. So for me, it was a great innings in, of the character that we know. 
Um, I'm not too sure if he's going to be making it. I'm not too sure what the uh, coaches and the selectors have told uh, the current team that have been picked for the four matches. Remember, they they renamed this this current team for the remaining two. So I'm not too sure he'll get in there. But these type of performances, even in the last fixture that's going to be happening, will then perhaps give him the go-ahead and the nod to tour the West Indies. So Temba must keep knocking the door down. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there, gentlemen. Mo, thank you very much uh, for, for, for giving us the insight and joining our conversation. We really appreciate it. Uh, Aslam, always a pleasure talking to you. Someone says you are the cricket encyclopedia and it's always good listening to you. And I'm sure we've got more of these stories that we can tell. Thank you very much. And on that note, we're going to end off with this message that I've just received from the PSL. It's just come through now. It says that the Premier Soccer League has learned with shock and sadness about the passing of Ausmantua Koza, the wife of the PSL chairman, Dr. Evan Koza, today. So the Premier Soccer League would like to convey its uh, condolences to the chairman, Dr. Koza, and his family during this difficult time. And uh, a moment of silence will be observed ahead of the matches this weekend.